Bring me fresh travelers! Hello, and welcome to the Downloadable Concept Podcast. He draws a red box, he's Talon Lee. <laughs> Uh, I must disavow any direct involvement in the production of IDOP. Ethics! Her life is strange. Foxley! I have contrary snivy! Fight me! And all my Neptunias are hyperdimensional. I'm Jeb Wrench. Hey Fox, what you playing? Actually, mostly I've been playing Pokemon X, which is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> oh no, Pokemon. It's been keeping your attention for a longer period of time than you would expect. Mm. Yeah, well, it's one of those things you can always come back to, and I think that's something I really like about it. Though in this case, mostly I came back to it because I haven't bought the newer versions yet, but they released uh, one of the starters with their hidden ability that you couldn't previously get, but now it's legal. So I, I basically wanted to breed them and flood the Wonder Trade market with it. Wonder Trade is an excellent thing where you randomly throw a Pokemon into the world for anything you might get in response. So, you know, I like to put good Pokemon into this system just because it's a way of making the world better. I still have... I still have a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, ghost Pokemon, ghost pumpkin Pokemon that uh, I was playing on one trading away, and all of them are named Ghosty Boo. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who interestingly was involved in the production of IDAB, who wanted trades away Snorlaxes with the name Your Mum <laughs> while they are holding Burn Heels. No. <laughs> So, Pokemon. No, I've been sending contrary Snivy out into the world. Speaking of Pokemon, I just gotta say, I adore that smug motherfucker. <laughs> that which what? <laughs> Snivy. He's one smug-ass motherfucker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and now consider he has the ability contrary. That's why I had to have one. It's not really about the power, it's because that's just beautiful. Have you seen that image meme of a goat dancing in the middle of the road with the caption, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me? <laughs> no. That is, basic, that is basically snivy, to a nutshell. If I could get a blank of that road, I'd totally put a snivy in there. <laughs> uh, Fox, I, I wanted to ask you, have you try, ever tried doing uh, any of the gimmick runs like uh, Nuzlocke or I guess Wonderlock's a thing now too? I'm not really into that. Like, for me, Pokemon is a very personal experience. I just want to get the things that I value and give them all the right name and make sure they all have the right sex and the right personality type. And it's more of it's more of an exercise in expression than a, a game mechanical experience. Your Ludo... Sorry, your, your Ludology... Nar- <laughs> your ludology vocabulary word for this is the core game aesthetic. Pokemon is an interesting game because it has multiple venues to satisfy a wide variety of play types. There are explorers, and there are challengers, and there are indeed competitors. And Pokemon manages to take care of all these types of players. Well, I guess that in itself suggests that the uh, core aesthetic... The core game aesthetic. Right, that uh, is choice and expression in a lot of ways. Uh, I've played a lot of World of Warcraft, and I have to admit, the core aesthetic was mostly lava and fire. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually why I could never get into World of Warcraft that much. It, uh, you know, MMOs are generally understood to be about expression, but uh, WoW especially doesn't really have a lot of that. When you get down to it, most of the choices are between better and worse options, not... Uh, personal values. The other thing I was going to talk about is not a video game. 
but it is a digital tool for gaming. And I guess I have to do an actual disclosure now because I've been in the beta of this for uh, more than a year now, though it has released by itself. But I've been uh, using something called Realmworks a hell of a lot, which is essentially it takes the problem of it's a bit hard to keep my role-playing campaign planning uh, well-organized and hits it with the biggest sledgehammer they could possibly create. <laughs> it's It's a massive database-driven program which has sort of your... Uh, almost Wikipedia-style entry for providing information about topics and linking them to one another and, and expressing all the relationships between this character and that character or this area and that plot. Uh, and a plotting flowchart and a game session management tool uh, and a game mechanics reference. It's It's huge. It's everything except a virtual tabletop, basically. Uh... And it's immensely complicated, really. It has a terrifying learning curve, but it's a fantastic tool. Oh. And I found it incredibly useful for managing my campaign. Um, it's a big-ass campaign. <laughs> if you're running something small, it would probably be overkill. If you're running something just big and ambitious and heavily story-driven, it's kind of priceless. Sounds like it would do a good accompaniment to anyone who's really looking into roll 20 uh yeah I, I was just wondering what if it would be useful for uh design document for for a particularly ambitious game like yeah. a computer game or yeah definitely oh yeah and the final thing they're working on which is particularly relevant to the kind of stuff we talk about on this show card games is that going the plan is to implement a content market Oh, uh, the idea is you will be able to publish modules for your preferred gaming system. Yeah, Talon, what have you been playing? I've been doing this sort of sampler thing on my Steam account, where I've a Steamsborg, Steamsborg, a Steamsborg, yeah, yeah. <laughs> With our internet access as it is, I have to kind of plan ahead if I want to play a game. So, like, I wanted to play Metal Gear Rising Revengeance two weeks ago. I got it downloaded last week <laughs> because games are just big and fat these days. And because our download speeds are Australian. Yeah, but that meant that I went through... Once once Metal Gear Rising Revengeance had downloaded, I had queued up a half dozen other much smaller games and got a couple of those over the course of the week. So I have World End Economica. Oh. And I have The Legend of Korra game, which is a multi-gig download, but it was much tighter than, I, than um, it's compatriots, shall we say. <laughs> well, it was always just framed as a download-only title, so... Yeah. I have heard it is a surprisingly good franchise game. Well, tie-in game. I've played... Disclosure, I've played ten minutes, but it feels great. Mm. Well, it's a platinum game. Yeah. Uh, it also feels hard as nails. Well, it's a platinum game. <laughs> Mechanically speaking, you, you... Okay, you have counters and dodges and movement. You have heavy and light attacks, and you have the ability to switch mode between which type of bending you're doing, bending has different levels of impact on different types of targets and different secondary effects. Earth bending, funnily enough, chucks people around. <laughs> Air bending has big area effects, but doesn't do as much damage. And water bending pushes people back directly, but it also lets you chase them. Now think about what that's like to try and learn. Well, it's a platinum game. Exactly. It's, it's <laughs> deep as hell. I 
suspect that it'll be kicking my butt. It's also, I'm told, quite short. But It's a smaller one. I shall have to try playing that as well. Um, the other game, and this is just as a teaser for the future for podcast listeners, the other game I've played in this sampling is Metal Gear Rising Revengeance. Did you get to the first boss fight? Yes. And did you discover the important thing? <laughs> Actually, no. I don't think I've been to the first boss fight. I fought the first gear. That's not. The oh, first you got to the boss. first. You got to the first mid boss. Right. Okay. Um, broadly speaking, uh, this game gets very drill, very fast, and we'll go into what that means when we do an episode on Metal Gear Rising: Revengeance. Um, hey, Jeb, what you been playing? I have. Uh been playing a few different titles. Uh, I started off the week perusing my Steam list and found out that I owned a copy of another Volition game. What I have the PC. I have the PC port of Summoner, the Summoner. PlayStation Two launch title, has a PC port which you can get on Steam. <laughs> <laughs> It's an action role-playing game that he's played... The PC version is played exclusively with the mouse. Okay. It's slow and not very responsive, and you get caught up in the world geometry, and I was going to try and soldier through it, but then I saw on sale Lily Child of Geos, and I bought that and played that instead. (laughs) <laughs> and found myself found myself in a breathtakingly beautiful world picking flowers and riding on the back of spirits and stealing flowers from them for currency Ooh. and collecting treasure and finding secrets and it's I, I think it's everything a lot of people really want in a game that sounds like a lot of fun it is wonderful is this a totally non-violent game? If, unless you consider... Well, from what I've found so far, the only violence has been picking flowers off of spirits. That's the combat. Lily Child of Geos is a... L- L- Lily Child of Geos is a game where I got rainbow poofed on by birds. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, this is sounding like a game I need to buy for my nephews, for starters. Anyways, moving on to... Uh, the other games I've had the luxury, the joy of playing today, or, well, actually, yes, today, they both came out today, one of which is IDARB. IDARB! It draws a red box, and then it just goes from there into basketball and hockey, and at one point when I was playing it, someone was watching and decided that everything should become circus-like, so the, the the circus music started playing, and neon lights were flashing everywhere. It was glitching out in all sorts of spectacular ways. It was glorious. Hold on, hold on. Uh, so spectators can interfere with the match? Yes. So on Twitter or on Twitch. <laughs> uh, That's very cool. They can Actually, do all kinds of, of things, like they can turn off the lights in the game. <laughs> and there are so many different uh, groups and people who have who were involved with the making of it. Uh, one of one of my favorite gaming podcasts, the Spawn on Me podcast. Their logo is in it. Uh, 
Team 17, the Makers of Worms, their logo is in it, and they have a team in it. It's, oh it's my god, I love that game. Such a fantastic <laughs> example of what games can be in a, a modern social media structure. The very first time I watched IDAR being played, I got to see an ostrich dunk a ball over a giraffe <laughs> while the Snoopy music played. That's all. I got to throw the ball off my opponent at half court, and I scored from there. <laughs> I, I am not going to play this game with game DVR off ever again, because I want to upload these. <laughs> this is um, it's reminding me of when Smash Brothers Brawl came out, and I always felt like they missed an excellent trick, because they had that uh, PictoChat stage... Yeah. And you couldn't flip open your DS and draw shit that would then go on to the <laughs> stage and fuck with the people playing. <laughs> that sounds, so, like, that sh- sounds like something that should be in Smash U with the gamepad. It does. Absolutely. And, you know, like, I don't know if this ever happened, but it's making me imagine, you know, a wrestling game where you can just be there as a spectator and, you know, occasionally pass a chair or whatever. <laughs> seems like a gimme, you know, a no-brainer. I'm not going to say that that hasn't happened yet, because wrestling games are a much deeper genre than I ever would have expected. Uh, the the other game that I have been playing uh, has been Life is Strange, which is... I think it's the game that David Cage thinks he could make. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's an acid burn, that is. It's absolutely phenomenal looking. Its aesthetic is consistent. Its interface fits in perfectly with what it's trying to convey with the with what it's trying to be. It's kind of a it's it's a, sort of a walk around inter- interact with the environment, make decisions, have conversations, look at items. Kind of like a point and click adventure game? Kind of like a point and click adventure game with a rewind button. When you make a significant decision in the game, you have the opportunity to after going through the dialogue that occurs, decide, is this really how I want this to happen, or not? (laughs) There's also uh, situations that occur where you need to... I can't really say fail, but you need to have something else occur so that you can get knowledge to use earlier... Like uh, to start to, to, to get back to uh, to get out of your your classroom faster to stop something from happening in the in the tutorial bit. You have Ooh. to go back in time to during your class and answer a question correctly so that everything goes a lot smoother and you can leave the classroom faster. It is alarming how good this game looks because it's somewhat realistic, especially the the, the sections in the school in, in the quote-unquote real world, but a lot of other parts of it are just a little bit stylized, so it has this kind of otherness about it when when Max is dreaming. The writing is kind of, eh. The writing, uh, I'm not so sold on the writing because it kind of sounds like the way that, uh, uh, well, someone on Twitter mentioned, and I, I agree with uh, agree with him, he said that the, the writing sounds like the way that adults think that teenagers talk now. So, you're having fun with it? I am intrigued by it so far. It is one of the, the most... Life is Strange really appeals to, to me uh, because I'm a, a huge fan of adventure games and have been for a long time, and this 
feels a lot like the the sort of uh, advancement that the genre ha- has had, like with the work of Telltale, especially with episodic episodic gaming and uh, their use of mechanics to convey their stories. Yeah, is it actually point and click? It's walk and click, <laughs> much like uh, much like a lot of well, like uh, The Wolf Among Us, The Walking Dead, etc. And now, bringing you all the news that's fit to print, the latest in retro news from the week ending January 31st, 2014. Brought to you by Chocobo Cigarettes. Mmm, deliciously Chocobo. All right, we had, last year, we had only really four game releases, and two of them I can guarantee you won't have heard of. Bring it. Okay, so the first things first, we have a point-and-click adventure game. Loom. Broken Age. Yep, Jeff Loom. got it straight away. It was Loom. <laughs> Loom did not come out in 2014. Why can't it come out every year? <laughs> I wish that I wish that Loom would have came out instead of Broken Age. <laughs> yeah, Jeff oh, this is, this is not on your list of exceptional modern point and clicks. That's a double fine game. Nope. Oh, oh, it's that one. Yeah, Broken right. Age is that one. Broken Age is the Kickstarter double fine. I'm game. sorry, I forgot it had a name other than Double Fine Adventure. It kind of it, its fame preceded it. Existing. So, Jeb, uh, do you want to just quickly give us a rundown on how you feel about uh, Broken Age? Broken Age is beautiful. It's got a fantastic aesthetic. It is. Its puzzles are soulless and lifeless. The writing is mediocre. It's double fine, just once again resting on its undeserved laurels and thinking that it's a whole lot better than it actually is. Ooh, cold. Please remember this is the game where you use... Use spoon on cereal is a puzzle that actually holds the game up. Yep. There's a lot of cursive enchantia style arbitrary flag bullshit. Is, is it a pun? Are you using the spoon on a TV cereal? No. Uh. No. No. But no. But the, the but the spaceship setting is like kids, like a like a baby's playpen because the kid the 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 spaceman is coddled. It's really frustrating too because as far as framing devices go. Here we are in this vast spaceship where every single thing you need is catered for you and everything is brought to you and all you have to do is press the button and you get the achievement and you advance the story. That's actually what in-universe is happening to the character you play. Yeah. That could be a great format to commentate on how point-and-click adventures became. They're not using it for that? No. Double Fine doesn't take chances. Yeah. Bear in mind, this game had already made a million dollars before it had come out. They have come a long way. I have some sympathy for them in that respect, because there was no way to win at that point. Like, they, you're faced with making a game which is worth a million dollars that fans feel entitled to, despite the fact the Kickstarter is like a sponsorship platform rather than an actual purchase platform. Yeah. I'm not saying it's okay that it turned out so mediocre. Uh, they've made great games in the past. They could have done it again. But I understand why it was difficult. I guess it's just a case of shame on them for getting scared away. Yeah. All right. Absolutely gorgeous, though. Oh, it would be great if they great. could have gone, we've already made the money, let's do the scariest thing we dare. That would have been pretty amazing. All right, now, now we're going to go for one of the impossibles. There is basically no way either of you are going to get this game. Ooh, a challenge. All right. It's a shoot 'em up a I'm side-scrolling out. shoot-em-up. Guns to Heroes 2. It's a console game. Ah. And it's not for that console. <laughs> what console? Or that console. Or that console. 
Is it something released in Brazil for their still being produced Mega Drives? You're in the right vein of. Well, okay, you're on the right company. You're not on the right console. So it's Sega. Oh, there was a、uh, Wrecker. You're you're so close. You're so、uh, close. Ah,、uh, I can't believe you know this. What was the other one? Redux. What was the other one? Damn it! Dark Matter. Okay. Right. Which okay. Which in 2014 was released for the Dreamcast. Ah.、Oh. Yes. It's like an alternate past where it never died. <laughs> and there was a sequel, The Skies of Arcadia, and everything. We have another game that came out this time last year on a console that isn't the Dreamcast. Its name has a Swedish word in it. It sounds generic as hell. It came out for a console technically of the previous generation. Not something something saga again, is it? No, and it also has something to. It also had a Kickstarter existence. The console. The console. It's an Ouya、oh, game. It's an Ouya game. It's an Ouya game. It's an Ouya game. game called Soulfjord. Oh, is it pronounced Ouya? Ouya. Ouya. I said it Ouya. I wouldn't know because I basically never had to talk to someone about it. Fair. I have so. That's how weak this time was last year. Right. An Oya game came out, but an indie game did also come out. It was a dad game. It was a good dad game. It has one of my favorite lines in gaming from 2014. Jeb has interviewed a developer. Indie dad game. I interviewed a lot of developers. Oh, oh, is it Octodad? Octodad. Right. Oh. <laughs> well, that makes up for the rest of January. No worries. What a shitty, shitty year. <laughs> I. I, you know, I should have real should have remembered that because there's a lot of talk on Twitter about Octodad's anniversary. I especially love just the Octodad concept as being placed where it was relative to the datification of all gaming. It was <laughs> just a beautiful thing to suddenly have come out of nowhere and go, "Hey, this is really ridiculous. Let's make something so ridiculous that people are going to have to notice how ridiculous this whole trend is." There is just like the the original Octodad just kind of rubbed me the wrong way、uh, right right at the start. Oh yeah. When they said, well, part of the tutorial is、uh, if you touch the makeup kit in the room, it says that you know this is not a thing that dads do, and it's like, oh, oh, so it's、um, it's not a major thing, but you know, I could have done without that. Is you know that's not the right way to disguise、yeah. yourself as a human dad, but. Yeah, that that does come across in kind of a negative sense. Which is weird because my favorite line is from later in the game where the dad is talking to his kids,、mm. and the line is, "A princess can be whatever she or he wants." He wants. Yep. Yeah. That that's、awesome. uh, that's in Dadliest Catch. Yeah, that's in the upgraded Doctor Dad. Oh, is that a special edition? It's the one you pay for.、Um, also, the original Octo Dad was a was just a was a freeware title. Oh, also, Octo Dad's、cool. multiplayer is bananas. <laughs> We have to try.、Uh, no,、that. it's tentacles. Yeah, it's tentacles, <laughs> but they are yellow and banana shaped. We yeah, we gotta play that at some point. We must have that many friends we can get to a, like a physical console in real life. That was a really disappointing set of retro news. That seems as good a time as any to shift to a new topic, which is point-and-click adventures, a genre about which much has been written and much has been misunderstood. I thought point-and-click adventure games were dead. Apparently, they were dead, and then they were dead again, and then they were dead again, and then they were dead again, and then 1998 happened, and they were dead again. One of the enduring problems of、uh, video game history is that it is this 
sequence of people proclaiming doom and gloom when it's not, and then people proclaiming everything is fine when it's not. I am super disappointed that we didn't see a, a resurgence of them on the DS, specifically. Yeah. The DS does have a couple of really good point-and-click adventure games. It does, and I wanted to see more. That was a really exciting thing. And even sort of, you know, point-and-click elements in other games, like the Professor Layton games, which mm-hmm. are pretty great, but the point-and-click is, you know, it's a minor element, but you it do, didn't have to be. You do have some good visual novel things, like 999, and some actually some pretty decent hidden object games, like uh, I have a Cthulhu-themed one. <laughs> What's that called? I gotta know about this. Uh, be, uh... Beyond, are at the Mountains of Madness? That's a pretty good sign that it's Cthulhu-themed. <laughs> oh, it is absolutely Cthulhu-themed. And to point to the visual novel point-click adventure Fusion King, really, the Phoenix Wright series. Ah, yes. I, I forgot they had point-and-click elements. They, they basically do, they? Yeah. they basically do. They have inventory puzzles. Oh, oh investigations. I can't believe oh, they goodness. didn't internationalize the second investigations game. I am I can understand so why. That. I can definitely understand why because uh, fan bases being loud is not the same thing as fan bases being large. I know, I just uh, I want to see the actual numbers on that because to my mind the the investigations games were the, you know, better cousins of the original Phoenix Wright games. Yep. Like I've always enjoyed Phoenix Wright, but it's, you know, there is an element of tediousness yeah. In the gameplay, which investigations really just refreshingly it fixed it fixed it. Yeah, investigations <laughs> is a really properly fantastic. Yeah, uh, it's a point and click adventure game by any other name. We don't call it a point and click because there's no actual mouse cursor or whatnot. But that's one of the things about post nineteen ninety eight point and click adventures. A lot of the ones that we got were evolutions of a mechanical theme or expansions of. Um, expansions on existing sets of mechanics. The the Sierra model of production. A little gaming history for everyone, because I'm sure you care. Sierra didn't make many games. Sierra contracted game creators, and those games were then released as Sierra games. So you know how these days you'd get a game that's like, say, an electronic arts game, and you'd get the electronic arts logo. Yeah, Sierra and get... were a publisher. Sierra did create and distribute engines, and they had contracts with creators about the usage of those engines. This is why if you line up uh, the major Sierra franchises side by side, you can usually see how they all swapped to one engine at the same chronological point in time. The The starting series for Sierra were using an engine called um, AGI, which was a 16-bit system, and it was used for Police Quest 1... Leisure Suit Larry 1, and um, King's Quest 1. Oh, it's going to be like adventure game interface, isn't it? Yeah. For a second there, I was like, oh, tell me that's something brilliant, like advanced graphical interface or something. No, no. I I love it when technologies have names in them, like advanced or ultimate or... (laughs) It's just a lot of fun to look back at that and go, yes, very, very advanced. Um, The developers of that engine... Um, you got you got a couple of like, and by the way, you could you could look at the creatives behind these game systems and see character reflected in even just the num the type the way the engine changed over time. Because there are three King's Quest games on the AGI engine, and they are big and sprawling, and they are full of fail states, and they are hard, and they are messes. But there's three of them. 
Police Quest got one game done in that same window of time. Space Quest got two games done in that period of time. Leisure Suit Larry only got two as well. Before the next iteration of the engine, the SIDHUV came along. I don't know what SIDHUV stands for. SIDHUV then gave you... you, Sorry, you, you tap a key, it brings up a static bar, and it freezes the game. And this was actually a really big technological limitation. Um, yes, I remember those ones. Yeah, that's where you got Space Quest Three. It's where you got um, Quest of Glory One and Two. It's where you found one of the Leisure Suit Larry's, two of the King's Quest games. Again, multiple King's Quest games came out on this engine because Roberta Williams was a machine. She was kind of amazing at just churning out these games. All right, so where are you going with this? I'm I'm just going with how Sierra, by controlling engines, controlled all these creative brands and licenses. And Sierra is the one that mismanaged its money and eventually collapsed. Sales of games like King's Quest VI, um, Quest of Glory IV, and the like, didn't flag as much as they didn't grow fast enough for Sierra's projected business model. Which eventually led to the shuttering and collapse of it. And that was the first time that adventure games died. And ultimately, this this failure to grow fast enough is really the problem that cropped up with adventure games. One of the conventional pieces of historical myth we share is that the adventure game genre died because people weren't buying them. People were buying them. They weren't buying them as much or as quickly. You know, now that you mention it, I actually recall one of the earliest games I ever played was a... I don't know if it was a straight version of the Sierra engine, because it, was, it wasn't it was actually text-based. It was it assigned things to the F keys. Yeah, this is Black Cauldron? This is the Black Cauldron adventure game, yes. Um, which, you know, looks incredibly like a Sierra engine game. Like, you can see that as soon as you boot it up. Um, but instead of actually giving it uh, your own instructions, it was, you know, you had an F6 for do and yep. like an F2 for look I think there were there are actually lots of them but you only sort of use three or four of them if you were going to be realistic about it Black Cauldron was an AGI engine game and they did a remake of it uh, well they did a, a related game called Mixed Up Mother Goose I played oh, a whole lot of Mixed Up that, yes. as a jebling yes yep. <laughs> when a wee jebling had a, access to a computer he got to play Mixed Up Mother Goose I I remember very strongly prioritizing finding the dog. <laughs> they actually did a Sid Huff remake of Mixed Up Mother Goose. Really? Yeah. That's that, the four point and click. That might have been the one I played, actually. Because um, I seem to remember the bar in the middle of the screen mechanic, and I seem to remember having more advanced graphics than the older Sierra games. Probably. But that's, that's, by the way, what, what year was that game made again? Uh, uh, 80. Which one? Mixed, mixed up, up Mother Goose. Mixed up Mother Goose. If it was an if it was a Sidhub engine, it probably would have been nineteen eighty nine to nineteen ninety one. See, where I'm going with this is that in that game, you could uh, customize your avatar <laughs> to any of a series of multiracial, multigender options. Nice. I'm just saying we had the technology. <laughs> Get on our level, mixed up Mother Goose. Earn you. <laughs> yes. So you had Sierra making. Adventure games, and then they got access to an actual point-click interface. You had the Lucasfilm games using the Scum Engine. The earliest Scum Engine game I know of... I hope you're going to say Maniac Mansion. That's in the title. Yep. Uh, Maniac Mansion... It is? That's the MM of Scum. It's, it's, uh... Yeah. Sim- oh. Simple, customizable utility for utility Maniac... Utility for Maniac... Yeah. yeah, for Maniac Mansion. That's what <laughs> Scum means. Um... 
the very first scum game I know of is Maniac Mansion, and the first evolution of the scum interface was a game called Loom. And I'm seeing Fox is polishing her little button here. Let me have a look at that. It, ask me about Loom. <laughs> hey, Fox, <laughs> what can you tell me about Loom? Loom is one of the only other games that I played a shitload of when I was a wee foxling. <laughs> I love this. Childlike innocence, I played a shitload. <laughs> I played the fuck out of that game. Uh, actually, I'm pretty sure I never managed to finish at the time, but I was quite young in my defense. But I have amazing memories of that. Everything from how it looked to the particular tunes that I can still remember perfectly. Not just because they're identifiable pieces of classical music, because I was a little kid. This is the first time I'd ever heard them. <laughs> Some of them I haven't heard again since. Um, but just, uh, that, that was an amazing game for me. Um, I remember one of the things they made a point of being the difference about it was that they weren't going to do fail states. They weren't going to do... Uh, the million deaths uh, of Jeez, what's the word for that? Where you fuck yourself, you know, half an hour ago and don't... Walking dead syndrome. And, you know, that made these games really accessible to little kids. <laughs> Which, you know, combined with the fact that it was a pretty, like, a mature-themed game, and I mean that not in the sense of... Like, you know, it does grown-up shit, swearing and fighty and, and blah, blah, blah. But Leisure suit, Larry. Yeah. In the sense that it was a really somber game. Like, you're wandering through this world that was falling apart completely. Um, having, you know, a lot of story that wasn't explained directly to you because it was more about uh, what you could make of these snippets of information. And mm-hmm. uh, Mist was good for that, too. I would love to see more of that. These days in terms of, of, you know, I mean, the show don't tell, but I would even prefer just don't tell at all. Just just drop hints and, you know, let people work with that. Yeah, we're good at imagining that's, shit. That's, that's basically the entire storytelling device of Dark Souls. <laughs> yes, actually, that's a fantastic example of it. You're right, yeah. Another element of Loom that's sadly forgotten is that Loom didn't have a look, pick up, open, close, use interface. It was a point and click in a very true sense. There was nothing in that game that wasn't pointing or clicking. Loom, the interaction in Loom for those young ones was you had a musical bar, I think that's the right term, and you played you notes. A distaff. A distaff. You played notes on the distaff to use spells. These spells were effectively how you did things. And, crucially, you could play them backwards to get a reversed version of the thing. <laughs> that was lovely. And, in fact, really well designed because there are a number of them that were symmetrical. And the point of that was that you can't, you know, these are the ones you can't play backwards because the reverse effect doesn't make any sense or it's useless or whatever. And that's an example of a very limited interface that allows for different expressions of power in the universe and expands on the Maniac Mansion use, touch, pull, open, close model of development. As, over time, adventure games became simpler in their interfaces, and that has good and bad things, but I think Loom is a game, especially if you're an amateur developer, go back and play Loom. It's on Steam. Yeah. It's $3 to $5, depending upon the sale, and it is a properly... <laughs> there is never a time when Steam is not on sale. <laughs> And, and it is a properly interesting game with an interesting set of mechanics. 
And it's also really beautiful compared to the other games that were around at the time. It looks and sounds great. Uh, also did something very, very cool. I don't know if this was a part of the standard edition or we had a special edition or whatever, but it came with an audio drama cassette. Feelies. That gave you the immediate backstory, because it's a bit of a... It's not a heavily in-media ray opening. Like, it's not, you know, you're dropped into a battle, but it is, you know, you are you wake up in the middle of a situation that is in progress. Um, and they gave you a little audio drama to show you what happened immediately before that point, and it was very cool. Following on from Loom, we have the dawn of the Lucasfilm Games, which would later become some other company, that produced Monkey Island and a host of related games, some of which I deeply love. Uh, Day of the Tentacle, Sam and Max, they are both games that (laughs) very much mean a lot to me. Sierra, on the other hand, in their point-and-click interfaces, were doing advancements on the Sierra model, which does have heavy amounts of replay, lots of fail states, and indeed, they made a game out of it. In the Space Quest games, they deliberately made it so that as many of the deaths had unique error messages and failure messages to make it funny when you died. Yes, well, I think you kind of owe it to someone if you're going to make them die that often. You have to make it entertaining. Well, Sierra's first attempt at an autosave in a game was in Leisure Suit Larry 4? I think it was 4? Passionate Patty in the land of the pulsating pectorals. That game's autosave was every 15 minutes the game would prompt you and say, hey, have you saved lately? <laughs> and that's it. It wouldn't even open up the save. It wouldn't even let you go, oh, yes, I should save it's now. It's a nag no, just, save. It would just nag you and say, you should save. <laughs> Bonus, because it did that, it would often encourage you to save after you'd screwed yourself over. <laughs> That I was going to say, if they had an autosave, did they take out the ability to screw yourself before you realise you screwed yourself? No, they did not. No. Brilliant! Sierra? No. No. <laughs> now, there is one Sierra developer that deserves... Okay, this is going to be really fanboy, but there is a Sierra developer who made their games sacrosanct and tried to fight as hard as they could against Walking Dead Syndrome. They didn't do it perfectly, but... Their stance was that it should happen accidentally, and it should happen. It should be hard. The example is in Quest for Glory. Oh, Quest for Glory were Sierra. Quest for Glory were published by Sierra, created by. So that was going to be my next question. Yeah, Corey and Laurie and Cole. Uh, which, by the way, if you've noticed, we are dealing with an era of game development where women were producing games back in the 1980s. You know, this is this has never not been the case. You know, just going around inventing genres. Yeah, just casually, <laughs> offhandedly inventing. Well, it's, uh, honestly, God, Quest for Glory was kind of the first adventure RPG. It's kind of a lone wolf novel sort of thing. They allowed you to carry over a save so your character could advance, which is something Mass Effect has... It, it's now known as, like, Mass Effect style. Quest for Glory resisted the, the Walking Dead syndrome, it resisted the Funny Death syndrome, but it also had a combat system. So you could get into fights with things and just lose, and that would be a thing that killed you. So there was much less of a reason to make death this accidental whoop cinematic thing. Randomized thing that you could get for poking twigs in the wrong order. Or... Yeah, it, it was trying to be more of an RPG. You had hit points, you could bleed to death, you could get poisoned and die from that. Which I'm going to posit is an especially good idea for an RPG, uh, where you've gone from playing a character to playing an avatar, yeah. or at least a self-defined character, because the 
The thing about randomized death, even if it's genuinely funny, is it really takes away your sense of control. It makes it very clear that you don't really... uh, Your actions don't have a logical relationship with your existence. Yeah. Glumping through this period of history, you have the arrival of other developers, you have other franchises, the Gabriel Knights, you have... Hugo! Hugo, which was a freeware version... Um, uh, there was one other point and click which was quite formative of my early gaming experience. Yeah. Which is now kind of notorious, though it's mostly Yahtzee's fault, that Curse of Enchantia came in a package <laughs> with our first sound card. Oh, God. Because it had one bit of person <laughs> yelling. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It, it's kind of a hilarious thing to bundle with a sound card in retrospect, because it has about a minute of music that loops through the entire game. <laughs> it's a nice bit of music, but by Christ, you get sick of it after the first hour or so. <laughs> Which, I, I also never finished that at the time, though in my defense, its logic is amongst the most impenetrable of any adventure game ever. <laughs> it's very moon logic. And there is a bit where it's just straight up random. Um, you then had the Hugo games, and there was a... There was at the time, there was kind of this stance that there were AAA devs making point-and-click and adventure games, and that was kind of it. It was a Sierra or a Lucas project, and there was one developer that threw their hat into the ring alongside that. Um, with regards... Sorry, uh, where was I? Uh, oh, yeah. The other developer who decided to throw their hat into the ring at this point was a company called Westwood, which, for those of you who are a little younger, you might not recognize Westwood, but you've probably heard of Command & Conquer. That was the star that Westwood eventually hitched their wagon to and took off to the skies. But they had a series of point-and-click adventure games called The Legend of Kyrandia. Oh, that was them? They were the guys who wound up making Command and Conquer? Yeah. Ha! Huh. <laughs> I did not see that coming. Command and Conquer... Sorry, uh, um, Legend of Kyrandia 1 was an attempt to make a sort of fable storybook point-and-click adventure with a fairly interesting interface where you could... Where the defining thing about the game was that the game had memory of objects... So if you picked up any object and put it down, you could put it down anywhere. So the game was designed so that every single object would just drop to the ground and every area had a floor of sorts. <laughs> well, that's nothing. Mixed up Mother Goose is already doing that. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, nonetheless, you had this game, which was honestly kind of impenetrable. It was a fairly generic game. You know, the jester has killed the king. You have to defeat the evil jester. You are... Uh, a lost prince, I think. But it was charming enough, and it was kind of good-looking, and it had a bit of a sense of humor. Then came Legend of Kyrandia 2, Hand of Fate, which... The Revenge. Which, honest to God, is probably one of the best games of that generation. <laughs> that's, uh... That's one of your earliest female protagonists in these kinds of games, isn't it? I think like, so. Like, some of them had an optional female, if it didn't oh, really have a character. Oh, doing them... For King's Quest 3... Sorry, King's Quest 4. 4, wasn't it? Yeah. The Perils of Rosella predates Hand of Fate by like seven years. That's a lot of years. Yeah. Um, Not to mention some you could choose from female protagonists in uh, Maniac Mansion. Yep. Maniac Mansion had female protags, and there was a... There was actually a couple of other series. How early games. was Maniac Mansion then? Sorry? How early was Maniac Mansion then? 1990? Maniac Mansion oh, was a long right. time Yeah, ago. that's well earlier than I thought it was. Um... Maniac so Mansion mostly was... what I'm getting from this whole first era of point-and-click is dead was, in fact, point-and-click is no longer the single dominant force in non-arcade games. Kinda. <laughs> you got to remember, around this period, id is exploding. 
So you've got Doom and the Rise of the Shooter, and you've got we finally can make point. We can finally make games that are fast and responsive and arcadey on the PC. Right. Yeah. So it's it sounds like this is more about help, help. There are other genres, but you also had things like um, Eric Chahi's Delphine, Delphine producing French-made point-and-click adventures that were honestly pretty bad. But really pretty. I um, forgot they did point-and-click adventures because the only thing of theirs I played really was pretty. Another World. Yeah, if that's your first experience with Delphine, that's quite likely going to be your last experience. With... It's 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 a masterpiece. Everything after that is going to be a disappointment. Yeah. I find it amazing that Flashback was one of the best games of its generation and it still isn't as good as Another World. It's, uh... I can't believe how friggin' beautiful that game is for something that's a, you know, combination of largely featureless polygons. The first... It's extraordinary. Not polygons. Uh... No, wait, polygons. That's actually the correct term. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, for our North American listeners, that was... That game was called Out of This World to Us. You had... <laughs> Delphine producing games, and you had Sierra producing games, you had Westwood producing its games, and you had the rise of the talkie. CDs were giving people more space, so you were having games where the whole thing was voice acted, so you had more costs associated, you had an increase in availability of FMV, the Tex Murphy Under Killing Moon, which, by the way, Under Killing Moon is an extension of a franchise. There was a previous game called Martian Memorandum, Mm -hmm. which, again, gritty failure of of a noir future cyberpunk thing. It's there It's a failure of a thing or it's no, the character a failure, failure of a future. Oh right. The character is a failure. Tex Murphy is honestly a bit of a bum. Oh right. Well th- that's kind of a noir thing, isn't it? Yeah. If even if even Comedy if you're kind of a hyper confident alpha male main character, you were at least down on your luck or you had one big stuff up or Yeah, that's <clears> true. Um so you had this whole swirling mass of games, you had the Gabriel Knights, you had the Conquest of Camelot's you had Robin Hood, uh, Legend of Sherwood. There is there is a huge genre of these. Things. You might have heard of Mist. Mist. That's yes. kind of a thing. I forgot. How about this? This genre is so big that I forgot one of the biggest things in it. Yes, <laughs> Mist and the Mist sequel. You forgot the thing that was the highest selling computer game of all time until The Sims came out. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You had Mist, which again used FMV and rendered backgrounds very sparingly but used it to create a huge, cohesive, incredibly impenetrable world. You played I wish a bunch I'd of... been able to play Mist at the time. And turned Jeb, turned Jeb, a young Jebling, into a lifelong computer gamer. <laughs> you played a lot of Mist, Jeb. Can you talk to us for a bit about it? <laughs> I played a lot of Mist. We had it at the computer lab in my elementary school, and it was... Well, our computer lab only had one PC. Everything else was either uh, donated from some charity organization or was old Commodores. But we had one IBM PC. Okay. <laughs> I've, I've, I have played a whole lot of Mist. I have bought Mist. I have purchased Mist at least six times. I have played it on four different formats. <laughs> I've played Riven on three different formats. I've, I have the entire series within arm's reach right now. Did you play the updated version of Mist that makes it a free-flowing, free real-time movement one? I have played both versions of Real Mist. Nice. <laughs> um, speaking of someone who never got to play it at the time, because our computer labs did not have 
<laughs> computer capable of running Mist. Um, how does it hold up? Uh, you know, in retrospect. Uh, I am the wrong person to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I used to own the novels for Mist, so I am probably the wrong person to ask. I don't think it really holds up as well, especially compared to later games in the series. Uh, I believe Riven is an absolute masterpiece, and uh, Mist 3 had some of the best puzzles in the series, mm -hmm. but I I adore the series as a whole, even Mist 4, and we don't talk about Mist 4. <laughs> well, Mist 4 was the one that wasn't made by by uh, the Miller Brothers. It's the one that was made by Ubisoft. Ah. If I remember correctly, that came out around the same time as Zork was trying to resuscitate itself by becoming like Mist. Possibly. Because again, Zork, another uh, particular component of this Zork. weird genre. Zork wasn't point and click, but it was adventure game, or it was point and click. Yeah, we haven't really, we haven't really gotten, we, we didn't really touch on text based adventure. Well, games. that's no, the thing. Textic. Zork originally was a was a text adventure game, and its franchise was. Oh, well, it was text only, wasn't it? Yeah, around the mid '90s when CD storage became a thing, and FMV based games were happening, and point and click adventures were becoming big and fat and flabby. Someone decided to try and bring back Zork with Zork Grand Inquisitor. That's the one that I've seen. It's a point-and-click <laughs> adventure. It's an FMV game. It is, broadly speaking, not very well remembered. I I just remember it being, well, more obtuse than Curse of Enchantia for starters. It's missed with fart gags. Um, uh, oh, maybe that's not the one I played then. It was uh, No, I think I played Zork Nemesis. Zork... Zork Zork games have their own very special logic. Yeah. And one day, one day, we'll find someone who worked out the baseball puzzle on their own the first time they tried it. <laughs> I'm expecting to sound... There's a whole lot of history... There's a whole lot of history leading up to 1998. Yep. And then 1998 happened, and then after 1998, the conventional wisdom was that the adventure game as a genre was dead. Lucas... For the second yep. time... LucasArts started ramping down the production of their games uh, in favor of another franchise they had access to it's called Star Wars. Yeah. This is why we never, never got heard a second loom, isn't it? Yeah. Lucasfilm had other things to do. And, and during that period, we also had, from like 1994 to 1998, most of what Lucas had been putting out was games that were remakes or CD-talky versions of existing ones. Oh, Yes. Which is why there was a fully voice-acted version of Sam and Max and a fully voice-acted version of Day of the Tentacle. And a fully voice-acted version of Loom, I believe. Yeah. But that one I never saw. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad I... You know, as much as I liked the audio drama, I was glad that the there weren't actually voices in the game. Yeah. The, the uh, period after that was conventionally viewed as one where, thanks to a couple of company failures like Sierra's collapse and LucasArts' decision to refocus on other, more lucrative properties... And Westwood's eventual uh, decision to focus on other more lucrative properties. Well, Westwood got eaten. Absorption into the, the into the monolith. <laughs> yeah, Westwood got eaten by EA, and in the process, the the, the whole Kyrandia franchise just dissolved because it wasn't very important at that point. Command and Conquer uh, was the thing. This is where EA was in its um, blah, in its blah, heyday blah. of eating little producers and pooping out nothing. Yeah, um, the. Oh, uh, last check, the people who make Westwood... The, 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 the people who made up Westwood are now mostly churning out Sims DLC. Throughout this period, the collapse of these companies and the reduction of the focus on these... This is really kind of like the rise of the of the mega-marketing system of video games. For about 
a 10-year window, you have the first instances of gamer as an identity, of marketers deliberately pushing this idea of centralizing your personal self, your personal brand on video games. It's the rise of electronic arts. It's the collapse of studios like Bullfrog and, um, yeah, and Westwood and Sierra and the eventual corporate hellscape we live in. Now, during that time, however, adventure games were still being made. They just weren't being made on the same scope with the same budgets by the same people. Which is generally being the stars of the PC gaming scene. Yeah, because that space had been taken up at first by Quake and then by arena-style games. And Shootman's games! And, yeah, Shootman's. Lots of Shootman's. That was and, definitely the rise of Shootman's. And, and incidentally, the rise of Shootman's is part of what made the video game industry into a billion-dollar thing. So, you know, some respect for Call of Duty players. And well, whatnot. yes, but it is what made it into a billion-dollar man-child vehicle as well. Sadly, there is some overlap between those marketing avenues. Not as much as people like to think, but yeah, they're totally I'm not saying I wasn't very fond of Doom. But I may have concepted a version of Doom where the only real difference was you were basically playing Lara Croft's more vicious cousin. Nice. The This is effectively the now. The past 7 to 15 years since 1998. And in that time, adventure games have still been happening. And really good ones have still been happening. Now we're going to get Jeb to talk specifically about a couple of real highlights. Um, we're not going to... I am going to ask... We're not going to talk about Kentucky Route Zero in depth today, because Kentucky Route Zero is an important enough game both to Jeb and in general that I'd be very much wanting to do an episode on just Kentucky Route Zero. Is Kentucky Route Zero a point and click? Yeah. Huh. It's a walk and click. It's a walk and click. Okay. There, there is a lot of wobbly definition in this. There's a lot of... There's a, there's a lot of... There's a lot of... What is yeah, Kentucky yeah. Route Zero? I, I thought Kentucky it was like Route a... Zero. I thought it was like a single screen at a time text-based kind of thing with, like, no mouse to speak of at all. No, not quite. Mm. Anyway, um, but we do have <coughs> sorry, a couple of really interesting modern point-and-click adventure games that I figure it's worth, time, worth talking about, and I know that Jeb has very firm opinions on some of them. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to contribute very much to this, unfortunately, because this is a genre that I've, I've really barely played it in the, the past bunch of years. I'm really interested to hear what you guys have to say. Well, this is this is one of my jams. So, Jeb. Yes, Talon? What can you tell us about the Samaritan Paradox? Samaritan Paradox is a game that absolutely surprised me. It started off as a fairly drab, uh, fairly drab storyline, generic, help this lady look for, or help this lady earn her inheritance and then it slowly changes into this elaborate conspiracy, and there's a, a deep, uh, there's there's a, a fantasy story going on concurrent to it, where she has to fight a dragon. It's it's it does everything so well, and everything you do in it, the game always is always able to surprise you. The the puzzles are. Wonderfully designed. There's always a solution you can find. It's, there's no blind luck involved. You can beat it reliably without a walkthrough. And oh, that's nice. The story is engaging. The the voice acting is isn't perfect. Indie voice acting at times, but it's it's independent voice <laughs> acting. I can't fault it for that. Uh, the the sprite work is absolutely phenomenal. It is. It was one of my 
one of my easily yeah. one of my fa- favorite games from last year, and it was yeah. done in Adventure Game Studio. Now, nice. Now, one of the things that you touched on there that is important is the evolution of puzzle mechanics. You say you can you can avoid getting stuck. Well, that's right. Uh, going back to, for example, the Mist series, Mist uh, Riven, the sequel to Mist. I can't really say Mist Two. Riven had a couple of very notorious puzzles, which either a you needed to have a guide handy to get through, or you really needed some non-linear thinking going on in order to solve them. One of them is, of course, the fire marble puzzle. Anyone who's played Riven either a remembers the fire marble puzzle, oh b has repressed the memory, has blocked it out of their mind, has repressed the memory. Because the fire mar- fire, mar- fire marble puzzle is not fair, but the the Samaritan paradox tends to askew the more traditional, uh, more traditional puzzle mechanics of we'll have a slider puzzle here, we'll have uh, light up all of these puzzles there in exchange for we'll have something in the environment environment that functions as it's still very directly a puzzle, but it fits in with the environment around you. It's it's integrated much better into the, the, the right. game itself. This And they use it nar- and they use it uh, narratively, it's explained, it's justified within the narrative. Right. This is um one of the things about the point and click genre in these past few years that I feel is very important. This evolution of mechanics and of approachability. Um the one of the other AGS games that's you can easily find is called uh, Gemini Root. Gemini Root is a noir detective thriller in space. Go on. In <laughs> it doesn't have cards. It's not quite that close to Jet Fuel. But it dinosaurs? actually has no. It doesn't have dinosaurs. It has mm. shooting mechanics. Like it actually has a, a very rudimentary combat shooting mechanic, and it's it's future guns. So the guns when you get shot will take you out because. Guns are pretty lethal in the now, and guns are even more lethal then. So it has this extra dimension to it. It has a lot of interface shifting in that, you know, you go to use a terminal, it'll give you the terminal, and you have to type into that terminal as you would. Um, it's a it's a very interesting game. I, I didn't click with it quite well, like as a personal review. It wasn't my thing, but I very much respect what it was trying to do with its engine and with its puzzles. The other modern... Oh, there's also Resonance, which... You know how Day of the Tentacle, you could... And Maniac Mansion, you could swap from character to character and they'd all approach problems differently? Mm-hmm. Fox needs to move. Okay. Um, in Gemini Rue, it's that exact same idea, except what if this was... Gemini Rue or Resonance? Sorry, in Resonance. It's the same idea of swapping between characters, but instead of a wacky, funny time travel adventure, it's a really dark, grim, futuristic, adult sci-fi movie kind of thing. It's a genuinely interesting uh, game. Um, Can't really discuss exactly what makes it so interesting, because as with all of these, like, indeed, with the Samaritan Paradox, uh, some of the stuff that makes these games great are spoilers. So we just have to, you know, trust us on this one. They're really good. (laughs) Uh, Then there's the Blackwell games. And the Blackwell games are... An inventoryless, at least the first one is an inventoryless point and click puzzler, where instead of having a character who jams every single thing she finds into her pockets, 
and gets around doing that, gets around solving puzzles with whatever she found at a different location. Your character has a notebook, and all of your solutions to problems come from looking at the things in your notebook and thinking about things differently. You know, there's going to be a spoiler for a puzzle. Logic! Logic! It really is the logic mechanic from uh, Investigation. investigations without the inventory. Now, this is going to be a spoiler for a tiny thing, but there is a point where you meet a character who has an ambiguous, who has a gender ambiguous name, and you just note down their name in your notebook, and you can look at that for other points. Later on, you're trying to get past a guard who's been told to only let a particular person through, and you hear that person's name, and the logical connection you go is, hang on, that name is gender ambiguous, this name in my notebook is gender ambiguous, I can claim I'm that person. And it was a, it, it's, it's a tiny puzzle in the whole overall story. It stumped me for ages because I didn't even think about considering the elements in the game world around me like that. That's kind of how Blackwell games work. They are focused on character knowledge. Also, you're playing a crime-solving spiritualist who has a 1930s noir detective ghost following her around and occasionally punching ghosts. There is another... Um, element we've touched on here with the Blackwell games and the Samaritan Paradox and indeed with Myst where there are point and click adventure games like to act as if there is a very uh, remote distance to them. Myst honestly tries to tell you, you, the player are the person interacting with this world. It's you, you've been yanked into this world and you don't know why you're here. That as a framing device works. That is something they that's that's uh, something they keep consistent through the literally entire series. Yeah, that that the stranger is you, and that's over the course of a hundred years somehow. (laughs) And that's honestly a good framing device for the kind of game Mist is, because Mist is very much about exploration. There are two forks, in my opinion, of adventure game design from the nineties, and they are expressed by a continuum of on one end. Laura Bow, and on the other end, Ben from Full Throttle. Alright, who's Laura Bow? Laura Bow is another example of a woman developer getting involved with the Sierra uh, hate machine. But, by the way, I didn't mention this, everyone who worked for Sierra seems to have hated them. <laughs> like, they gave an engine, and the engines were made for great games, and the people involved liked their fans of their games, but Sierra themselves appear to be complete buttheads. Anyway, Laura Bow was a series of girl detective murder mysteries made using the SidHub engine. Yeah. Broadly speaking, adventure games, as they were designed throughout this period of gaming history, was a sequences of doors and keys. It was you find object A to interact with door A. Door A opens up, gives you access to B or door B. And right. it was puzzles gated by other puzzles. Puzzles gated by other puzzles. And usually it was done in this very twisted, illogical way. A lot of what you did was incoherent when taken as an individual instance. In Monkey Island, um, one, one example of a puzzle is that you can give a guy a bottomless cup. Like, <coughs> literally no bottom on it. And before you have any reason to do that, you can just give it to him. And that'll work. Because the puzzle is about connecting these three things together and not necessarily knowing why they worked. Mm-hmm. This use key on door structure served pretty well for a lot of games, but it meant that over time the games became more obtuse, and while you would occasionally get fun moments, like in Simon the Sorcerer's games, you were playing a little 12-year-old boy and he was a little shit. 
So at one point you have green die and there's a fountain and you can just throw the die into the fountain and now the fountain is green. And that's fine. That makes sense. Yay. Why would you want to do that? Well, it turns out that three arcs of the game later you want to make an alligator disguise and you need the washerwomen's <laughs> clothes to be green. Anyway. That's the kind of bullshit dream logic we're talking about for a lot of these things. So everybody, be careful to just just plan in advance for the time when you will need an emergency alligator costume. It's true. Make sure you die bomb fountains. Anyway, that style of puzzle solving is the key on door thing. Laura Bow was a game that tried to push against that design. Because what you were trying to do was, even if you, the player, had solved the mystery, you're trying to get Laura into a position where she can solve the mystery. Which means Laura needs to witness things. The first Laura Bow game was Laura Bow and the, and the Colonel's Bequest, which is about going to a gigantic mansion out in the middle of the southern marshes. I can't remember the word for that. Louisiana-style stuff. Oh, the bayou? The bayou. The bayou. Out in the bayou. You go out to the bayou and you get this great big southern estate, and there is a crotchety old man, the colonel, who is in a wheelchair and is dying, and you have his sexy French maid and his various relatives. And one of those relatives is friends of Laura. She's invited Laura to come and stay for the weekend. And while you're there, someone is murdered. And that starts off this chain of investigation. What you are doing in this game, for the most part, isn't a lot of pick up knife, use knife on lock to open it style stuff. What you instead get is a game that's mostly about making sure Laura is in the right secret passage, looking through the right window at the right time, to observe other people's behavior so you can infer it all together. The whole point of the game was to make a type of a mystery adventure where you could never solve it by getting to the end of the game and just guessing and reloading everyone's names. So that style of game, one where it's about informing a character and going through that character's experience, was very clear. The other end of the extreme is Full Throttle, which, God help me, I love Full Throttle. I wondered when you were going to get to Full Throttle. Full Throttle is... A LucasArts adventure that is actually seen as one of the breaking points for the funny, weird department of LucasArts making adventure games. Because it is a video game about playing a post-apocalyptic biker uh, avenging the death of what is really meant to be a Harley Davidson, kind of father of motorsports kind of guy, uh, and clearing your name for a murder. It is a game where you change, where you ride a badly controlling motorbike down badly controlled <laughs> roads and chainsaw people in the face. It's not the best game in the world, but I really do love it. And in Full Throttle, the interface is after all the Monkey Island games where you got the increasingly complex... Ah, uh, yes. You know, look, look push, use, move, build. open, close. Yeah. yeah. You have Full Throttle where... There is no visual interface at all when you're playing the game. You have the cursor, that's it. The cursor lights up red when you can interact with the thing. You hold down the mouse button and it brings up a tattoo. And that tattoo has a skull on it, a fist, and a boot. <laughs> the fist is take stuff or oh. use stuff. The boot is kick thing. See, I thought for a second there we had like look, punch, and kick. You have look, taste, punch, and kick. Well, punch and kick is one thing, right? Uh, not really. There are instances where you need to punch someone. Does the hand, in fact, punch things? Yes. Oh, okay. As well as pick things up and... and okay, so it is actually representative. It's more... It's not... It's not defined by what the object needs done to it. It's defined by you can do this with your hand. Yeah. (laughs) 
That's a bit cool. So Is the skull also talk? The skull was also talk, yeah. Alright. This like interface that. was kind of... Uh, this interface was great, and it worked really well for conveying Ben as a character. It wound up making later games that tried to do the same thing a bit weaker. Ben... Look, the very first puzzle, literally the very first puzzle in Full Throttle is you're in a dumpster, you can't see anything, what do you do? You punch the first surface you can. <laughs> and now, and, and if you don't punch the right part of the dumpster, instead you just get this bulge in the side of the dumpster. Oh, your perspective is outside the... Yeah, so right. this is like punch, 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 punch. Whew, okay, I'm out of the dumpster. <laughs> and that sets the tone for the whole game, where you, again, you punch people in the face, you kick things, you solve problems... One of my favorite things you can do in that game is, just after getting out of the dumpster, is you can kick dumpster. And Ben stands over next to it, kicks it once, and then goes, take that. <laughs> if you do it again, he says, and that. And you can just sit there kicking the thing over and over again. Oh, does he not eventually go, I think it's learned its lesson? No. <laughs> That's not the kind of guy Ben from Full Throttle is. No. <laughs> I'm actually really liking this as a point of comparison to Loom, which also had a really, really simple interface. Mm. Like... But it's you a very could, thoughtful interface. You could play your staff, or you could click on a thing. Mm-hmm. And that, well, as an expression of character, that's really interesting, because Bobbin is this, um, you know... Meek, uh, inoffensive, kind boy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. He, you know, people wind up dying in this game, and it's uh, literally because... Uh, there's no good way to phrase this without it being a spoiler, but I think that the statute of limitations has expired on Loom. Loom is over 20 years old. Yeah, right. He, he does wind up killing someone in the game, uh, you know, more or less, and it's literally because they force themselves upon him. Uh, and, uh, but it's, uh, you know, he is basically a character who observes and then picks from a few methods he has to compel something else to happen to a thing. Whereas Ben is... A character who happens to things. Yeah. The, it's the, a very nice use of mechanics as character expression. The example that was given by one of Full Throttle's developers was that in Day of the Tentacle, the main character, Bernard, would, when confronted with a door with a sandwich in his inventory, would do the key and lock puzzle with the ah, sandwich. Yes. You know, slide the sandwich underneath, push the toothpick through, pull it back through. That's a very thin sandwich. Whereas Ben would eat the sandwich and kick the door down. Ah, <laughs> oh, if he'd been a woman, he would have defined my youth. And that's something that the modern indie point-and-click adventure games have got down. Character informs action. The This idea, which was kind of hard to get our heads around during the 90s, because Roger Wilco, that, that, that guy's an idiot. That guy is an utter <laughs> toolbox. Well, yeah, you're early adventure game protagonists didn't really have much personality. Well, well I, I guess Larry had a lot yeah. of personality, but he had the personality of a literal penis. A lot of them were either losers like 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 uh, Larry or or other meatheads like King Graham in the King's Quest games. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about it. <laughs> Graham um, was pretty bad, but in, in the... But even then, like, okay, you can... You can infer a sort of character from that plethora of ways in which they die sort of thing, but well, with as Roger far Wilco, as them expressing themselves goes... To use Roger Wilco as, a, as an example for this, Roger, at one point in Space Quest 1, there is a giant pool of purple liquid. You have no idea what it's for. It turns out, nothing. 
you're you not supposed to be drinking it at all. You can, however, type drink liquid or touch liquid. And if you do, he sticks his whole head in it and his head dissolves. And then he does this little animation of, ah, I can't find my head. Die. And then the game makes fun of you, the player, for telling you to do something so stupid. <laughs> okay, yeah. So he, he really didn't have much of a character and he wasn't you. Well, yeah, Roger did have a bunch of character in that he was also a loser. He was a, a janitor who had failed almost all of his janitorial exams. He wound up saving his home planet and in return was awarded a really well, nice mop. That's sort of like character, but what it mostly is is place. I mean, you could tell me this is is what happened to him and this is what he occupied, but like, what does he enjoy? Mm. Uh, who is he friends with? Right. So uh, and that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like, I don't, I don't get a sense of who that person is. Now, uh, another thing is that for indie development, the mechanics of a point-and-click adventure game are incredibly light. You don't have to put a lot of work into them to make an adventure game. Basically, we we have adventure game studio that is quite robust and quite easily distributed. What this means is that if you want to make a point-and-click adventure game, it's content. It is lots and lots of content. You need backgrounds, art assets, you need characters who can move yeah. around, you need dialogue, you need puzzles, you need an approach to puzzles. There's a lot going on. You need an idea about how you're going to link puzzles together into anything except an arbitrary sequence of, of Dream logic, success. A to B to yeah, C. Yeah, exactly. You can still make, you can still make excellent games with, uh, with, with, uh, the arbitrary set of puzzles. I mean, look at Amanita's games, like, like Machinarium, like Samorost. Yeah. Ma- Machinarium is, well, it, it helps that in Machinarium you are ultimately trying to come up with a solution to a vast mystery you don't understand. That's like a metaphor for point-click adventures event in general. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, there's also the... Uh, sorry, uh, Jeb, you, you you mentioned it earlier, but there's also games that use the JRPG engine style to create what are still essentially point-click adventure games. Yeah. You've got To the Moon, off the top of my head, and Richard and Alice. Hey, Jeb, can you explain Richard and Alice a bit for Fox? Well, in an earlier podcast, Fox, uh, you mentioned that you'd like stories to to have, uh, you know, a positive resolution uh, to, towards them, right? I did. Do not ever go anywhere near oh. Richard and Alice. <laughs> Dallin is giving me this. He's just shaking the head. Look, when I reviewed Richard and Alice, I compared it to a really good Harlan Ellison story. Ah. Mm. And I, I know the I know the developer, and uh, that was not the first time that she had ever heard that comparison. Yeah, <laughs> and she loves that. So bleak, bleak, fucking it is bleak. good. It is so well written, and it is so effective at hitting all those emotional tones that you want out of something so dire and bleak and oppressive. <laughs> It's a deeply emotionally it's, it's, effective game. It is a box of tissues game. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so setting that aside... And that game uh, uses... Well, tell me about the play style that you were describing. It's a, it's a, it's a lot like a... It, it, aesthetically, it looks a lot like uh, you might expect a, a 16-bit role-playing game to, to appear as, but it's actually a point-and-click adventure game that... It's just a point-and-click adventure game that uh, mostly just has... The puzzles set out to advance the story and the things that you find and the way that you interact with situations dictates which of the, the endings you get. One of the things I found really remarkable about Richard Nowell <coughs> was that because most of the puzzles in the opening third of the game are very much of the 
key on door, A to B, B to C, C to D, structure. Not very many parts, not many ways for things to move or, or mess up. It gives you the impression the first time you reach the end of the game that you did, as it were, the right thing, that you followed the one path through the game. When the game branches, it does so so subtly that I honestly didn't realize it was branching at all. Hmm. Very, very smart game. That's commendable. I've talked to I've talked to more than a few people who said I didn't even realize it had multiple endings until I look at the achievements. Yeah. <laughs> Which, incidentally, is another reason why achievements are not a bad thing. Rich analysis is deeply affecting very serious, very uh, painful games. I, I, every, I think a lot of people should play it. I can't think of anyone that I like I would recommend it to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's tough. It is so... It's so good, though. It's a grim game. And I don't know many people who like grim games. So that's just how it goes. It's like, I, this is a wonderful game, and I want you to play this, but I like you. <laughs> now, I'm probably going to wind <laughs> And I don't want you to feel that much soul pain. In all seriousness... The point-click adventure genre is not a dead or dying thing. It is a persistent thing. It is one of the simplest ways to express a narrative using video games. And there are people who are making funny, interesting, clever, cheap games. You should totally go out and support them if you can. And they're doing it better than Double Fine ever has. Speaking of 1998... Alright, coming to you now from 1998. It's all the news that's fit to print for the month of January, January, January... Brought to you by Crystal Life Potion. It's extreme. All right, we have a Seeker Saturn game. It has a German word in the title and a Swedish word in the title. It's about Draken. Sorry, Draken. You're in the right franchise. <laughs> you said Tekken. <laughs> that's not Swedish. <laughs> you said Kraken. Like, well, that, yeah, I think that's a Swedish word. Panzer Dragoon? Panzer Dragoon Saga, yes. Alright, that's one. We have a PS1 title. Came out... Actually, no, sorry. We have a arcade... That came out in January. Sorry, in, ja in January 1998, we also had an arcade title come out. So this is back when actual arcade releases were noteworthy. Oh, uh, is, is this a Last Blade game? No. Death. No. Um, the other big company... It's a Capcom game. It's a Capcom game. In fact, it's a, it's a versus, Street Fighter game. It's a versus Capcom game. Oh, Marvel versus Capcom? Yeah, Marvel versus Capcom was in January nineteen, January twelfth in Japan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fun, funnily enough, there was a there was enough of a infrastructure in Japan to support that kind of game. But that got released here in arcades, didn't it? It did, but basically, Japan, Japanese boxes would sell. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. Boxes. Our arcade scene was definitely dying by that point. Yeah. Alright. Certainly wasn't dead yet. Okay. Now. <laughs> okay. Th this is going to be fun because both of these games can be described this way. Uh, they're a sequel to a franchise. They have incredibly wooden acting. The protagonist in both of them is basically a lizard. Okay, so Gex? Holy shit! <laughs> I was going to say that! <laughs> yes, a friend, a friend of mine has been playing Gex lately, so I, I'm all on Gex. Gex 2, Enter the Gecko. I, have you actually seen the acting in that? It's or were you bad. just guessing? No, no, it's bad. It's wonderful. Gecko. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's not as good as that, what is it, Spanish language Shrek game? 
that's only one game. Look, there's look, another one that fits look, these G- criteria. Gex has a very deep and meaningful storyline. I mean, do you know the reason why Gex is is uh, so infatuated with television? No. Uh, is I... it because he used to be the pet of someone who watched television before he fell in the ooze? It is because he is looking for some kind of escapism after his father died in an accident. Holy crap! Really? <laughs> this is what I have been informed. Are you just wow. making shit up? <laughs> I am not making this shit up. <laughs> wow. Okay. The other game, still in this context, bad voice acting, sequel to an existing game franchise. Hang on, I'm about to cough. Croc 2. <coughs> The protagonist is basically a lizard. Croc 2. But in this case, tank controls. So if you turn your character, move back and forth, you can't turn dynamically. And no, it's not Croc 2. Turok 2. No, it's also a Capcom game. Uh, Dino Crisis 2? The franchise is still going. Resident Evil 2? There he goes. <laughs> That is tank controls? Yes. What the oh, yeah. fuck? <laughs> uh, the reason why the Resident Evil game started off with tank controls is because you didn't have analog sticks on the original release of the PlayStation 1. Yeah. And then they inherited... Isn't that a great reason to not have tank controls? No, 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 because it was a 3D space. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you wanted to be able to turn shoulder exactly. for... Like, what, what are you, you pressing to, to move tr- if you're using tank controls on that? You press, you press forward. forward up, you press up on the directional pad to go straight. You press left to turn your character model to the left. And you couldn't turn because dynamically. You couldn't walk forward you had, and turn. Okay, we think of tank controls as being two different things. I think of tank oh, controls okay. as being, um, like, two stick. Oh, like Katamari. Uh, like in Katamari, yeah. Okay. That's what tank controls means to me. No, no, no. This, this I was thinking, is... how the fuck do you make that work when you're just a person walking around in space? That's weird as hell. Uh, the Resident Evil games used uh, the, those type of tank controls because there were no analog sticks and also because the camera was in a fixed position that would change as you move through an area. I see. So you wanted to keep moving straight even though you've got to keep moving forward even though your character was facing in a different direction yeah ooh wow that's uh... wait are, are you wasn't that uh Resident Evil 2 she was a lizard I'm making a joke about her level of acting ability <laughs> okay yeah she's not actually a lizard she's just so when you said lizard I thought you meant like sleazy guy Oh no! Or I'm like Claire, emotionless Claire, person Claire, pretending to be a human, like just Tony Abbott. Just an emotionless kind of shell of a person. I, I apologize for taking jabs at Claire Redfield. I thought it was Jill Valentine in RE2, actually. No, it was one, wasn't it? Jill Valentine was uh, Jill Sandwich in Resident Evil One, right? Jill Sandwich. Go on, explain that one to her, Jeb. Speaking of bad voice acting, uh, in in uh, the original release, the original North American release of of the first Resident Evil, there is uh, a scene where uh, if you're playing as Chris, you get tra- you can get trapped in a room and get crushed by a by the ceiling. Oh yeah. If you're playing as Jill, you fortunately get saved by Barry, 
And when Barry saves you, he says, you almost got turned into a Jill sandwich. Oh, that would be a great line of dialogue if it was for six-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> now, till next week, that's been Fox. That's been Jeb. And that's been Talon. Tune in next week when, by then, we will hopefully be associated with IDARB. I first encountered Jump Jet Rex when Shelf was talking on Twitter and he was reciting from the ad. In this game, you play a direct Tyrannosaurus Rex wearing rocket boots. Stop. I will buy your game. <laughs> That's all you need right there. Oh, I love it.